I would hope that I've made a difference in the lives of some of our airmen, our medics, as a servant leader. And truly, if they walk away from the Air Force, gets back to that motto I shared from Metsy, training for the mission, educating for a lifetime. If they walk away better because of their time spent in uniform, and I had something to do with that, then that's the piece I would like people to remember. It's one medic at a time. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Lieutenant General Robert I. Miller serves as the Surgeon General of the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Space Force. He is a pediatrician with fellowship training in developmental behavioral pediatrics. In this episode, Dr. Miller describes his pathway into Air Force medicine and many of the clinical and leadership lessons he has learned throughout his distinguished career. He talks about his experiences as a flight surgeon, as well as his time in command and deployed in support of contingency operations across the world. General Miller explains some of his top priorities in his role as Surgeon General and some of the unique challenges of ensuring a ready medical force prepared for future conflicts, which likely will include multi-domain operations. You can find out more about Dr. Miller and previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Air Force Surgeon General, Lieutenant General Robert I. Miller to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. That's truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. General Miller, tell us what brought you initially into the Air Force. The short answer is money. It was uh, the cost of medical school, but kind of the rest of the story was I grew up in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and family steelworkers on both sides of the family, on my mother and father's side. And I, from an early age, wanted to be, wanted to be a doc, wanted to be a physician. And so that was the goal, even though I didn't have a, a, anyone in the family that had been in medicine, actually no one that even went to college. So when I finally did go to college in a small liberal arts school outside of Pittsburgh called WNJ, Washington Jefferson College, and was looking at options, one of them was Uniformed Services University. And I'll be honest, I, I, I wasn't ROTC in college. I wasn't, wasn't sold on going the military route, but I went to that interview and uh, funny story is I had a beard. I, I had hair, the long hair at the time. And granted, it looked kind of cleaned things up a little bit. But I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to shave that beard off if I don't know if I'm going to the military route yet. And, and kind of fell in love with the school. So to be fair, I, I came into the, into the military and into the Air Force for financial reasons. But the reason I stayed was very different. And it was the, the love of the mission, love of the Air Force, and wouldn't do it any different when I look back at my career. So after USUS, you trained in pediatrics and then completed a fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics. How does the Air Force utilize subspecialized pediatrician and what opportunities are there for pediatric residencies and fellowships in Air Force medicine? It's a great career field. I didn't go to medical school thinking I was gonna be a pediatrician and actually thought I was going to go into family medicine. But one of those things that after a rotation really enjoyed interacting with kids and then went the developmental peds route because I really enjoyed dealing with special needs families. And and I know you all have had one of my colleagues, Forrest Faison, another developmental pediatrician. We actually had a kind of a similar career path from UCIS up to, to Madigan for fellowship and at the University of Washington and Children's Hospital up in Seattle on. But I, I think similar in all the services, pediatrics plays a critical role in military medicine. First of all, I mean, we, we're concerned about the entire family and it, it's just not the active duty member. And, and that goes for care overseas and, and also back in, in the States and to include all of the subspecialties. So we do have a lot of areas where we're a little remote. And if it wasn't for having peds available, you probably couldn't have families, couldn't be a company tours. Separately, from a training standpoint, the military has amazing graduate medical education. And once again, having that pediatric discipline in some of our larger facilities 
is just critical when you think of the relationship with some of the surgical subspecialties and other things that depend on having pediatric patients for folks to have their training accomplished. And then finally, it is that deployment mission. And sometimes it is downrange. And that, that was my experience where we're not going thinking, hey, I'm going to be taking care of kids in this deployed setting, but it happens. Certainly when you think of even within the United States, if we deploy for a kind of a disaster response, humanitarian crisis, there's often a need for pediatrics. So for those that are interested in a career in pediatrics, and I had people ask me, hey, should I be worried that that won't be an option? I think that is not a concern and, and there will be a need for many years to come. So in addition to being a subspecialized pediatrician, you're also a flight surgeon with a, and being a senior flight surgeon with 541 flying hours, including 21 combat flying hours. Tell us about the training to be a flight surgeon, the primary responsibilities one might have, and what are the differences in the flight surgeon capabilities and responsibilities between the Air Force, Army, and Navy? To become a flight surgeon, we obviously completing four years of, of medical school or some sort of DO school, and then at least doing an internship. Not required to do a residency, but uh, that is something that is often highly sought after. And, and for me, I had completed my pediatric residency, had already had a job as a general pediatrician. And it was actually during my fellowship that I had the chance to uh, go to the, what we call the AMP course, the Aerospace Medicine Primary Course, which now is at uh, USAF SAM in Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. And it's an eight-week course. And granted, it kind of you know, sets a stage for the requirements, but you really learn a lot on the job. And, and I can't stress enough how important it is to have that opportunity and caring for aviators and then having the, the chance, I mean, understanding the stressors and the environment that they function in as a flight doc, it's important that you get to fly with people you're taking care of. And, and that's kind of a cool thing and something that a lot of different platforms and aircraft that you might have the chance to be exposed to. So there are very similar training opportunities between the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, but obviously different aircraft. And based upon that and the mission, then, then it is a little bit different in regards to your experience, which service you're in. And, you know, in the Air Force, our vision is to be the uh, world's elite medical service in air and space. Our niche is the air domain. And so to be a flight doc caring for those aviators, we, we do make that mission happen, helping to make sure that air crew are ready to go. I uh, have not had the pleasure of actually serving as a flight doc in a regular assignment, but I've been in that role now twice during conflicts, once in, in Aviano and, a, and another time in, in Iraq, and, and truly just an amazing, amazing experience. Any particular clinical memories of being a flight surgeon and functioning in that capacity? And second question, we won't ask you what your favorite airframe is, but what is the most <laughs> difficult airframe to perform care in as a flight surgeon? You know, I mentioned two opportunities I've had. One was when I was at Aviano Air Base, Italy, was there as a developmental pediatrician in Kosovo hacker. And so in addition to doing my developmental peas job, I had the chance to take care of aviators as a flight doc on the side. But really my, my, my big experience was in Kirkuk, Iraq. And that was unique because I was at the time the Lake and Heath Med Group Commander, and we were sending an EMEDS in, and this is 2016, 2017, things were still pretty busy at that point and had the, had the opportunity to deploy with everyone from my hospital. It's kind of got to handpick the team of, of some 50 folks to go. Now there was, even though I was the EMEDS commander, I was also a flight doc and there was only one other flight servant, a gentleman by the name of Pat Storms, Colonel Storms, one of my squadron commanders who was the more experienced flight doc, a GI specialist. So between the two of us, we were responsible for the AeroVacs going from Kirkuk, Iraq, taking, taking patients after they were stabilized up to Balad. And so he had the tough cases and he was very kind to kind of set me up for the ones that were uh, not as involved. But to be honest, you do what you need to do. And I can, two things come to mind is it's kind of like, I, I kind of felt like a backup quarterback at times. So that I remember the anesthesiologist kind of 
got me a, a, like an armband with all the key meds I needed to use and had it right there on my shoulder because kind of getting your question, what's the most challenging? Boy, being in, being in a dust off, army dust off helicopter, it, it, it is tough with things shaking around and you're trying to listen to breath sounds and heart sounds and to keep your patient alive and in route. It is, it is not the easiest thing in the world. But one other memory is it was, it was actually New Year's Eve when I had a mission and, uh, it, you know, when someone's shooting at you and you, and you see the, the flashes from the ground and of course in, in my mind, I think, are they just celebrating New Year's Eve? But unfortunately, uh, it wasn't the case. And, and so that was, that was a common experience, but obviously I just had to focus on the patient and I knew the pilots would take good care of us and get us to Balad safely. I think that's how they celebrate New Year's Eve. They shoot down enemy aircraft. <laughs> I think you're right. Now, we may also have some listeners that may not understand the acronym that you used, EMEDS. Can you just briefly describe that to us? Yeah, it's our expeditionary medical system that was created by a former Surgeon General, General P.K. Carlton, some goodness, 20, 20 years ago. And it is a kind of a role one facility that will have limited surgical support, a general surgeon or orthopedic surgeon, some primary care docs, ER docs. Once again, getting, getting folks from off the battlefield, initial stabilization surgery, not keeping them too long. And, and they can, they can have some beds. You can have a plus five, plus 10, plus 25 beds. Ours was a, was a plus 10. And, and so once again, life-saving surgery, and then move on to the next higher level of care. And it was really a, an amazing experience. I mean, if I had my, my wish, every Air Force medic would have the chance to deploy at least once. And people talk about being reblued, coming back from those experiences, knowing without a doubt in your mind why we serve. And, and that was that kind of experience for me. She then became the Medical Operations Squadron Commander in the 30th Medical Group at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, when 9-11 happened. How did that change your world and shape your career trajectory? You're right. Changing your world is probably a fair, fair term. And, and, and I remember that day distinctly because I was actually on the East coast TDY with a few folks from the med group. And when we got the news and we, we, we were kind of stuck on the East coast, could not get back, but that was my first opportunity to be in a non-clinical role full-time. So it was my first command job as a squadron commander over a medical operations squadron. And, uh, you know, it kind of brought home the lesson that you might have previously, I might've focused on, Hey, I only need to worry about bad things happening when you're deployed, but obviously it can happen in the homeland. And it, it really did allow me to kind of refocus on the importance of readiness and, and change the way that I thought about air force medicine forevermore. So one of the other things that you did in your career is you obtained a master's in strategic studies as well as an MBA. How do those degrees help a military physician in leadership roles and specifically a military medical provider? No, that's, that's a great question. None of those things are required, but, but I can't stress enough that I, the importance of being choosing to be a continuous learner. And so that's something that I feel strongly about. I owe the military for medical school at UCIS and, and then sending me to uh, Air War College to get that master's of strategic studies degree. But to transition from clinical to leadership, we all have gaps. And, and, and I know I, I did. And so to, to fill some of those gaps, I looked at other opportunities to enhance my knowledge base, to help me understand the business of healthcare, and in the transition from being a clinician to a physician executive, it doesn't happen overnight. So I, I thought it was important. And, and so things like the American College of Healthcare Executives or American College of Physician Executives, I think they've changed their name now to American Association of Physician Leadership and MBA, which I got through uh, UMass online, really helped expand my knowledge base. And once again, anything you can do to fill your own weak areas and make you a better leader, I think is, is important. And so thanks to the military, even though I did all these things during my career, they allowed me to continue on. And I have no doubt I'm a better leader as a result. So do you ever have times where you're in a meeting and 
someone will throw around a little bit of business jargon and you pull the MBA out and they're sort of wide-eyed looking at you, not realizing that you may understand what they're talking about? It happens. I, I try hard not to, not to do that too often, but occasionally, yes, you have an administrator, friend, colleague who uh, assumes, oh, he's just a doc and he's not going to understand this. But it's nice to know, even if you just keep it to yourself. So you had mentioned earlier that you were the commander of the 506th Expeditionary Medical Support Squadron and when you were deployed to Kirk Air Base, Iraq. What memorable events do you have and lessons that you learned that from that deployment that might be applicable to other people listening? Yeah, it, it, if I could share one story that is very memorable. Sometimes when you get deployed, you think it's it's going to be about battle injuries, but we talk a lot about disease, non-battle injuries, and how important it is to not forget about that and and, and go in kind of with the, the broad skill set. So in reality, probably one of our sickest patients that we had during my time at that EMEDS in Kirkuk, Iraq, was one of our own staff. We had a female airman, young airman, who was a BMED, biomedical equipment technician that repaired equipment. And she came into the EMEDS in the middle of the night, felt something bite her on, on the chest, and she was smart enough. She killed it and put it in a cup, wasn't sure what she killed, and felt okay, but, but came into the EMEDS. And I remember getting a call as a commander and said, hey, sir, you, you, you probably need to come on in here and take, take a peek at this patient and understand what we're dealing with. So turns out that what bitter was a, a scorpion. Now, it was a very small scorpion. I could barely see the darn thing. But it happened to be when the public health officer who was part of our EMEDS opened up his book and looked and see what you know, I had to identify. It was a, a death stalker scorpion which are one of the most lethal scorpions out there. And, and even though she looked great, stable as can be, within an hour, that was not the case. And so my fellow flight surgeon, Pat Storms, actually packaged her up and got her to Balad. She actually coded in route and uh, had, had a rough go. And happy to say that eventually got stabilized and, and was able to return. But it was funny. I don't know if you remember, there was a TV show, I think it was called World's Deadliest Animals. And they used that story as one of the episodes on on the show. But I guess Kirkuk, Iraq is kind of like Disneyland for scorpions. So uh, you have to you have to walk around with a black light and things you'll learn like that in those kind of experiences. You just have to have a, a lot of tools in your kit. And, and you can't be focused on any one thing because life happens. And once again, non-battle injuries also happen and to take care of your folks and the things you, you never would dream you'd be dealing with will occur. I remember hearing about it's not the size of the scorpion that, that really matters because some of those smaller ones really pack a punch. Absolutely. It's, it's the big ones you don't have to worry about too much. Yeah, it hurts, but they're not going to kill you. The little ones that you have to use a black light to find, not so much. One of the other interesting jobs that you've had is command surgeon for U.S. Africa Command. What, what are the military medical priorities in that combatant command? Because that's kind of off the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, that was, that was a great opportunity and a learning experience for me where you really learn about the whole of government. I mean, it's one thing to try to learn about the military health system or the other services, but when you go to a COCOM, kind of a different story. And this was early uh, in the creation of Africa Command. So it had not, this is pre-Libya, so it had not transitioned into a, a war fighting command. In fact, we didn't even have a J staff. So it was a different focus. Our initial mission, we like to say the vision was to uh, try to create stability through health as we were developing that trust and partnerships with different countries on the African continent. And so I remember going to my office, I was a second AFRICOM command surgeon. And when I went to my office, there was an exam table and a box to read x-rays. I'm thinking, huh, is this, is this what my job is going to be? But quickly, you know, we, we transitioned into what we were really there for. And that team of medics, it was all about medical planning support. And, and working with some of the country teams, working with the embassy teams. We had international health specialists, a really cool job that is available to, to medics. And once again, partnering where we're doing a lot of education and training. And a lot of my focus at the time 
once again, not as much on the war fighting, but developing relationships, developing that trust with different countries. Malaria was a big focus, but I'll be honest, I'll never forget my very first mission from Stuttgart, Germany was down in Pretoria, South Africa. And if you've ever done that flight in a, in a, a Gulf Stream with a couple of refuelings en route, it is a long flight. And I realized how big how big that continent is and the challenges that, that are there, but just an amazing experience and opportunity. You were then the director of education and training in the early days of the Defense Health Agency. What is the role of the Defense Health Agency in supporting medical education and training, and how does it work with each of the individual services, particularly the Air Force? The Defense Health Agency had not stood up long after METC, the Medical Edu- Education and Training Campus, was created. So it actually, 2013, it stood up and I became the second METSI commandant in 2014. And I'll be honest, that, that was probably one of the most enjoyable jobs that I had in my career. And, and just an incredible mission when you think of all the training, the enlisted medical training that occurs, just a, a treasure of a campus with some almost 50 courses, 6,000 daily students, 20,000 graduates per year, per year. The motto at the time was that we train for the mission, but ideally educate for a lifetime. And the amazing young enlisted medics that would pump out of there. So there were some early challenges as the school was created before the DHA. And, and so readjusting how the DHA then takes on more of a, of a leadership role and supporting the requirements of the services. The goal is to try to consolidate as much as you can and sometimes some of those specialties, whether it's a surgical tech, a dental tech, a med tech, a 6-8 whiskey, at times you can consolidate the training, but there are other times where services have unique requirements. And, and that's kind of the challenge of the DHA to support all comers. One of the best things that happened while I was there is we developed a partnership with Uniform Services University that now supports that training helps with the degrees, transcripts. So you have the potential now of young folks leaving METSI, potentially with an associate's degree or other other degrees that then support them for certifications and other things. And whether it's a military career or once again, returning home after their life in the military, working as a medic, supporting their their hometown, it's all thanks to the military and and the opportunities we we offer. So really just once again, a national treasure. So following your, your working with the DHA directly, then you came back to the services and commanded the Air Force Medical Operation Agency in San Antonio. Having that experience in DHA, how would you say that DHA and the Air Force work together to provide the healthcare benefit to the el- eligible beneficiaries, but also focusing on that ready medical force and medically ready force that's so important? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so in those early years, we were, we were still trying to find our way and there were some early growing pains and we've come a long, long way with that relationship with the Defense Health Agency. And when having been, been a part of the DHA, kind of as education and training and, and the METC Commandant, I, I fully understand the benefits there. So at the time for, for us, ACMOA was all about delivery of the healthcare benefit. Wasn't as much the readiness mission, but it, delivery of the healthcare benefit and that execution arm sitting down there in San Antonio, one hub supporting 76, all of our Air Force MTS. And and it really did work well. When I left in 2018, it's kind of that that period where per congressional guidance, National Defense Authorization Act, we were instructed to to stand down at MOA and, and transition that mission to the DHA with their focus now on the delivery of the healthcare benefit. And it allows now the services to focus even more so on on the readiness mission, creating those ready medics and, and ready medical airmen. And that continues to be a work in progress, but we still have, if you go to any Air Force MTF, uh, you're going to see about 80, 80% or so folks in uniform as medics, different models in, in how to best support the services. And, and at least within the Air Force, I mean, we still have, which, which is unique to kind of my belief that our NTFs are, are, are readiness training platforms. And I think we can do both, deliver healthcare, working with the DHA, supporting their mission, and getting people the right reps and sets so that they can perform their, their readiness job, deploy as needed. That partnership and that relationship is just critical. 
So we come to your present job, which is now the Surgeon General of the Air Force. What are the issues on your front burner and what are the challenges that Air Force Medicine faces right now? When I became the Surgeon General about, well, it's a little over a year and a half ago, almost two years, we were in the middle of COVID and it was a challenging time to say the least. And so my, my focus, to be honest, and continues to be taking care of airmen. And I kind of followed the lead of my boss, General C.Q. Brown, Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He had come up with some action orders that really I thought were powerful and spoke volumes of, of what was important to him. And I kind of emulated what he did in a similar manner, in a kind of easy to remember ABCD format. For me, really the focus was on A, airmen. And, but personalizing it as medics, who take care of patients, whether they're airmen, whether they're beneficiaries, family members, retirees. But actually my focus was more on medics, taking care of fellow medics, just understanding some of the challenges and stressors and everything that was going on in the world with COVID and, and, and Afghanistan and, and deployments. The B is about balance. And once again, a very personal question for every medic. How do you balance your, your professional life, your, your personal life? your fitness, your spiritual life, whatever that means to you. And how do you spend your 24 hours in a day? And, and C is currency and competence. And that gets back to that critical readiness question, being ready for deployment. And, and how do I make sure that I'm putting medics in the right areas so that they can do that? And then, and then finally, D is diversity and inclusion, knowing that we are stronger as, as a diverse force. So those four priorities, those action orders haven't changed. And I suspect that I will continue that throughout my tenure because it's, it's still pertinent. It means, means a lot to, to me and the, and the people that I have the privilege to lead. So currently you can't turn on the news without seeing all kinds of crazy stuff happening around the world with Russia, Ukraine, China, Taiwan. You go to any military briefing, they're talking about, hey, these counterinsurgency operations are going to be a lot different in the future. We're talking about large-scale combat operations, multi-domain operations. So I'm going to put you in the office. You mentioned the chief of staff of the Air Force. You're in his office and he says, hey, Bob, we've got some crazy stuff going on. Is Air Force medicine ready? And if the answer is yes, how do we know? And that question comes up frequently. It really gets back to training. To be honest, we had to take a, a bit of a pause during COVID. Luckily, we're, we're in a different place now. We're able to kind of refocus on on our training, refocus on making sure we have the right medics in the right locations to do their job. In addition, we're, we're looking hard at even our, our structure, how we're set up to deploy, because there's no question that we've done very well in the CENTCOM environment. We've talked a little bit about EMEDs, but what if we're not in a place where we have control of the air or you have the tyranny of distance or you need to be sitting on patients for a lot longer before you can move them to a higher level of care. So are the appropriate training opportunities there? So the way we kind of uh, manage and track our training, we have something called the CMRP program, the Continuous Medical Readiness Program that we document our skills. And, and it's a little easier when you're doing it within the direct care system, within an MTF. Even if you're in a civilian setting or maybe in a VA setting, we have other ways to kind of capture the workload done. But making sure folks can be really good at their day job, whatever that is, and then specific to their, their specialty or specific to their readiness team that they're a part of, by providing that kind of comfort and knowledge to my boss to say, yes, sir, I can, I can attest that we're ready in these areas and I think we are there, but it's a never, never ending challenge to constantly keep people up to speed. And, and there's other things we're doing to prepare for future contingencies to make sure that something called MedicX that I feel strongly by having multi-capable airmen. And even for those folks that may not be in clinical jobs, how are they ready to, to support the, the fight if that fight happens tonight? It's always seemed to me that the Air Force was a little bit ahead of the curve from the other services in recognizing the importance of military-civilian partnerships and the C-STARS program in Baltimore and Cincinnati. Where do you see that in the future with Air Force medicine? Yeah, that, that continues to evolve. You know, in a perfect world, it would be wonderful if we could get everything done within a direct care system, within an MTF. 
and every medic would get all of their reps and sets. And that's just not realistic because obviously we have some medics in locations where they just can't get enough patients with the right types of issues to keep their skills up to their specialty. So the things you mentioned, whether it's C-STARS, whether it's partnerships with another VA civilian hospital, one of our focus areas right now, getting back to our niche, AirVac, and its movement of infectious patients. And, and so we do have a, another partnership going on with the University of Nebraska Medical Center and, and our, our CCAT teams. And, and how do you move a patient? Now, whether we're talking about COVID or we're talking about Ebola, it's one of those things that's tough to be cutting edge based on just-in-time training. And, and so how do we develop some of those skills as we're moving folks in these special pressurized containers to not only keep the air crew safe, but the medics safe while we're keeping patients alive until we get them to that next level of care. So that continues to evolve. And we are very thankful that we have amazing partners, like you said, C-Star Baltimore or, or the folks in Nebraska and many others that are ensuring our medics are ready. So as being a subspecialized pediatrician, when you have more specialty training, there's fewer in the inventory. How do you prioritize what parts of the medical system you think should be in these civilian partnerships when it comes to allocation of the, the limited resources? And that is an ongoing challenge where we have a, a team of specialists at the headquarters that they're constantly looking at that. Do we have folks in the right locations to ensure that they are current and capable? And, and if not, do we need to, to move them to a different area? And, and sometimes it's not the total number, but it's once again, the right type of medic in the right location. So that can be challenging. Like right now, to be honest, I mean, I can't grow enough CCAT teams fast enough. And those critical care air transport teams, having a critical care doc, critical care nurse, and then a respiratory tech and, and move in patients. Our niche, the AeroVac mission is so important in making sure that they're in areas where, once again, that they're seeing their, the types of patients that keep their skills up. We're, we're going to do whatever we need to do to make sure that, that that's available. So for those of you who can't see the video, you're, you're currently wearing a uniform that says U.S. Air Force. But you're not only the U.S. Air Force Surgeon General, you're also also the Surgeon General of the U.S. Space Force. What are the unique requirements and challenges does that bring? And what kind of different things that you have to focus on from your Air Force Surgeon General hat and Space Force Surgeon General hat? Yeah, I have the privilege of being the, the second Surgeon General that, that wears two hats. And, and granted, our Space Force is a much younger service that is gradually building. And, and so today we don't have, we call our, our Space Force, they're not airmen, they're guardians, but all of the medics supporting guardians are still Air Force medics. And there, there will probably be a day where there may be a separate Space Force surgeon, separate from the Air Force surgeon. So today I do have two patches on my arm, one for each, and I have to su provide equal support to General Brown and General Saltzman. But it's an amazing mission, and, and it goes along with the AFMS mission to de deliver trusted care anytime, anywhere, whether that's in the air or potentially in space. So, you know, right for years, we've been focusing on flight docks. Well, what's it mean to have a space dock? And, and granted, we don't have many with that experience. Right now, I think in the country, there's only two locations where you can get that type of specialty training. One's down in UT Health Science Center in Galveston, and another up at Mayo. Luckily, we have some amazing partnerships working a lot with NASA, and we've had docs who have trained with the folks down at NASA, and, and we have something called the uh, Air and Space Innovation Alliance, where we're, it's kind of a, a partnership of the willing, where we're, we're, we're meeting with folks like from NASA, from the FAA, and other key areas to share gaps. So I know that that is going to be an area that we need to become experts at over time. Because even though, as I kind of described, I worry today about moving an infectious patient, maybe from Europe or the Pacific back to CONUS. Well, what if it was moving an infectious patient from the space station back to Earth? And how would we do that? 
And so there are some unique challenges that still need to be sorted out. It actually, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating and, and it creates a whole bunch of buzz and excitement. And, and there's a lot of folks that want to be medics supporting Space Force for good reason. So you'd mentioned earlier the Medic X program, and we'd heard a little bit that about that at the AMSIS meeting. Can you tell us about the Medic X program and what is it designed to do? The Medic X program was actually created by my my predecessor, Prior Surgeon General General Hogg. It is all about creating multi-capable airmen, something that General Brown as a chief it focuses on for all of our airmen, but specific to medics, when you think about it. We know gonna, going forward with, as we prepare for the next fight, fight we're probably going to have smaller teams that are going to need to be mobile and follow the iron wherever the flight line needs to be, pack up and move with, with that small team to support the mission. So what if you only have 10, 20 medics and there's a mass casualty? Well, it's all hands on deck. So to get there, that means that every medic needs to have certain basic skills. And so we defined 54 medical skills that, that I believe every medic, whether you're clinical or non-clinical, should be competent at. And so we're now rolling that out across all of our MTS to ensure that when someone's down and they scream medic, it doesn't matter what your day job is or what you do back at the MTF, you will have certain skills to help save lives, to, to help be a part of that team that potentially keeps patients alive for a longer period of time. And, and granted, we're not talking about having admin techs put in chest tubes, but there, there are quite a few skills that we've shown that can be learned and, and folks can be very effective in all domains, whether it's a disaster within the United States, think of a shooting in Las Vegas, or whether it is a, a scenario in, in a war setting and, and you have a smaller team, every person counts. One of the things that we've really understood is the importance of sleep in overall wellness. But as a Surgeon General of the Space Force and the Air Force, you've got lots of responsibilities. What is something that kind of keeps you up at night that you worry about? I have to admit, I do worry about the challenge that a lot of our, our medics are facing when you think about medic burnout. And so once again, my first action order gets back to medics taking care of medics. We've asked a lot of our folks, and whether it was COVID, whether it was the Afghan crisis, some of the hurricanes that came through, we, we kind of have been through the perfect storm over the last couple of years and making sure that we're taking care. And it's not just the docs or the nurses, it's the entire team, the officer enlisted force. And so how do we best support all of our medics to build that resiliency, supporting mental health, concern about suicides? In fact, I I just, just finished a great book called Fist Pumps by Dr. Scott McDermott. And it's, it's one thing to say you're worried. It's another thing. What do you do about that? And, and that, that's one of the things I enjoyed about that book. We talked about how, to, how do you address some of these challenges. And, and granted, they're going to be personalized and different for everyone, but it is a concern of mine. One of the things that we've seen too recently, and you mentioned this, that over the past couple of years with the COVID, Afghanistan, there's a lot of things in the Pentagon that are going on and medical is right there. And I'm sure that you're in those conversations. Any memorable stories from the Pentagon over the last couple of years, kind of behind the scenes stuff? Oh, that's a good question. The medics have always been important to the line, but with the COVID challenge, I mean, this has kind of been our fight and, and it has brought us to the table with a dependence on the medics to support the line in a, in a way that doesn't, hasn't been there before. So I, I can't say that during that tenure, it is as close as I felt to being deployed, but still being in DC and kind of seven days a week, long days for many, many, many months. And the, the relationship should build in a deployment. It was kind of unique kind of doing that back here at the Pentagon and Defense Health Headquarters with an amazing group of folks. But uh, I think that relationship, that trust, our delivering that trusted care, whether it was COVID related or once again, the medics were always there, but it was kind of a uh, helpful reminder of the important piece we play. One of the things that you've talked about, not on this show, but, but at other venues is that there are wearables that the Air Force is currently investigating. And 
one of those is the assisted trauma distributed observation kit. Where do you see the direction of Air Force medicine heading in the next 10 to 20 years? There is a lot of disruptive, innovative creations that are happening in the uh, research and development realm. You mentioned the Battlefield Assisted Trauma Distributed Observation Kit or BATDOC. And that's just one example of, hey, when there's an operational requirement, a need, that was something I think the special ops community brought up, that they needed a better way to be able to monitor patients and track, document care in the field setting. And so this went to a bunch of smart folks at Wright-Patterson, at USAF-SAM, working at the uh, 711th Human Performance Wing to develop something. And, and that doc was created to be used at that point of injury. I foresee other things happening, kind of the, the, the future of, of battlefield care gets back to wearables and other sensors. How do we use virtual medicine? And, and as I kind of mentioned, just the challenge, care for patients in space. It's, it, it is hard enough sometimes in the air environment and making things are air worthy, whatever the tool or equipment we might use, but space is a whole different domain. And so we absolutely are dependent upon having operational medicine, research and development continuing separate from some of the, the, the clinical things that maybe a DHA may focus on. And it's always amazing to see what, what our folks create and I could not be more proud of them. A relatively small percentage of our country has worn the cloth of the uniform of the United States, and even a smaller percentage has been involved in military medicine. What is something that America doesn't know and should know about military medicine, and maybe specifically Air Force medicine? The military health system in general just provides such incredible capability for our country, whether it's in the delivery of the healthcare benefit or in the deployed operational setting. But I would say specific to the AIRAVAC mission, no one does it better than, than the Air Force Medical Service. And our CCAT teams, they truly are flying intensive care units. You know, and until you may, you may need that type of capability, it could be life-changing. I think someone that, that you had on your show, Benjamin Hall, saved, where I think he had the opportunity to talk about his experience of having been injured in Ukraine and then, and then coming back to San Antonio through that AIRVAC process, which may not always be pleasant, but obviously it, it's life-saving and game-changing. And when we send people into harm's way, there has to be that trust there, that promise that no matter what happens, we're going to get them back home to be with their family. You know, a big part of that is that the, the AIRVAC mission. So I, I know that not everyone has that, that opportunity to see that in action, but it, but it truly is amazing. And, and it starts, starts in the ground with an in-route patient staging system and then transitions onto planes, sometimes with basic AIRVAC crews, sometimes with the CCATs, and then on the receiving end. And, and the other thing that is just amazing, it's, it's not the active duty, it's total force. So it's the guard, it's the reserve. And, and the fact of the matter is we couldn't do all that we're asked without the total force being, being a part of the success story. And so not that I wish people have to become patients and, and experience what Benjamin Hall did, but it is one of those things that to uh, see it in action is, is truly memorable. When you look back over the time that you spent in the military, what is one leadership lesson or piece of advice that you've been given that now that maybe you wish you had known earlier in your career? I get the opportunity to visit a lot of different MTS with my chief across the globe. And, and I love having mentorship lunches with young airmen. And, and that question comes up all the time. What would you do different? What, what did you not know at first? And, and I'll be honest, it gets back to uh, a story that I'd share that uh, I, was, I was working at a MAGCOM down in San Antonio at Air Education Training Command, kind of as a chief of clinical medicine role. And, and the MAGCOM surgeon at the time, a general, who I didn't know real well, but he, he called me into his office and sat me down and we were having a, a chat and he asked me, what was my leadership style? And I wasn't sure. And I was thinking to myself, well, what are the options? And he pulled out a book. And he gave it to me and he said, this is for you and I want you to read it and I want you to keep it. And I've watched you and I, and I, and I think I know what your leadership style is. And it was a book on servant leadership. 
And I learned a valuable lesson that day that the value of, of reading. So if I could do something different, I mean, we all come into our career focusing on learning your skill, whether you're a doc, a nurse, tech, doesn't matter. So that the type of reading I'm talking about is maybe it is professional, maybe it's fun, but it's maybe you're trying to make yourself a better leader and you're filling your own personal gaps. And I think what I've learned over the years is if you look at a lot of our senior military leaders, even leaders in the country, they have a common theme, they're all voracious readers. And so I really try to mentor folks and say, you got to read more or, or even driving to work, putting on Audible, listening to books on tape. And I think that makes you better. Listening to podcasts too. Listening to podcasts. Absolutely. Which is something I've done and enjoyed your show. And, and, and it really does fills in holes and, and makes, makes you a better, in my mind, airman, a better leader. And, and potentially a better husband, wife, spouse, parent, and, and we all have gaps and, and you just have to choose to fill in those holes. So one of your specialties is pediatrics, but you also do developmental and behavioral pediatrics. Tell us one of your most memorable experiences as a time in treating patients with pediatric patients with behavioral developmental issues. In the field of developmental peds, for those that, that don't know, I mean, we're, we're dealing with disabilities generally, and, and whether it's a mental or, or, or physically handicapping condition, but we don't always, rarely do we cure patients, but it can be life-changing to have a diagnosis and to be able to tell a family what our realistic expectations might be and how to add quality of life to a family and a child in a situation. So I have to admit that, uh, you know, in, in my world, I see a lot of folks back in my full-time clinical days with autism, with ADHD, sometimes with chromosomal issues. But I'll be honest, one case that, that comes to mind was a, a young family that had a child that had a severe, fatal congenital abnormality, a metabolic condition. And, and I had the pleasure of, of supporting this family. And I, I always say that the good Lord gives special, special kids to special families. And you, you, I've, I've had the pleasure of interacting with the most incredible people, but to be invited into a family's home and to be on speed dial and to get that call to come to their house when it was time to say farewell to their child, that's one of those life-changing experiences that, that, that you don't forget. And, and once again, it changed me and to develop that relationship with that family was, was one of those things that I, I still hear from them. And I, I, you, you just don't forget that type of a privilege to make a difference and, and be a part of a person's life in a very special personal way. When you have a child who's has it, say, has a new diagnosis, does that also open them up for other resources that may be available to them from the Air Force if they have a child that's diagnosed with one of these developmental issues? Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and so unfortunately, we don't have uh, a ton of developmental pediatricians. And generally, we work in multidisciplinary teams. So frequently, there will be speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, mental health providers that, that will work with families. And it's very common in the overseas setting, we have something called EDIS, Educational Developmental Intervention Services, knowing that you may get support within the United States and, and within your local community, but it's tough overseas. And so we have to put these teams, and I've done that before, and I've stationed out of Aviano, but would go to Turkey, to, to Izmir, to Insulik, and take care of these families. Because when you think about it, the goal is, how do we support these families so that Either they can PCS, when you talk about exceptional family member program, how do we get that maintainer that you need for the mission who might have a family member with attention deficit disorder or some form of autism? How do we get them to maybe an Okinawa or a base where they may not have all the resources? So what we're doing now in the Air Force is something called the DBFRC program, Developmental Behavioral Family Readiness Centers, where we have small groups of medics focused on a developmental pediatrician. We got eight hubs scattered throughout the globe. And each of those hubs will have 10 bases that they'll visit. And quarterly, they'll kind of do the rounds and, and see families. And sometimes it's making a diagnosis. Sometimes it's helping to treat somebody they've seen before. And then 
in the gap, they can provide virtual care to the family or support that local team that would love to have the specialists available. But let's face it, you cannot put a large medical center at every base. And so this works beautifully. It had something I did early in my career and, and it's working now and it's allowing us to not only PCS more families to areas where that support may not be inherent or diagnose them and keep them there and, and also expedite the process because there's nothing worse than being worried that you have a child that might, might have autism. You got to wait a year to have an evaluation done. So this is something we're continuing to roll out. It really has, has been a game changer in many ways. And you could say, was this about pediatrics, delivery healthcare, or is it readiness? And I would tell you it's both. Because if I can get that family to a certain base to support the mission, but still support their family members, then that's a win all around. When the history books are written 50 to 100 years from now, what would you want the legacy of Dr. Bob Miller in military medicine to be? I'm okay when my time is done and I'm, I'm, I'm getting close. I've got a, about another year left. I'm okay walking away and, and people can forget about me, but I, I would tell you that if I would hope that I've made a difference in the lives of some of our airmen, our medics, as a servant leader. And truly, if they walk away from the Air Force, gets back to that motto I shared from Metsy, training for the mission, educating for a lifetime. If they walk away better because of their time spent in uniform, and I had something to do with that, then that's the piece I would like people to remember. It's one medic at a time, and it truly is a a privilege and honor to serve, whether it's in that clinical role or in, in the opportunity I have in a leadership role. We've been speaking with Air Force Surgeon General Dr. Robert Miller on Wardock's podcast. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Oh, thank you. It truly is my honor, and I can't thank you for what you do. It, it, it makes a difference. Thank you for listening to Wardock's. We sure hope you enjoyed it. WarDocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word. 